Welcome to Brainstorms, Functional Neuro Rehab for SLPs, presented by SpeechTherapyPD.com. This podcast is designed for the adult medical speech-language pathologist. Most of our audience members work in settings such as acute care hospitals, private practice, outpatient hospital clinics, and inpatient rehabilitation hospitals. Each episode has an accompanying audio course on speechtherapypd.com and is available for 0.1 ASHA CEUs. The content of this course is based on the research and experience of the presenters. The listener is responsible for researching to determine if the information and skills taught are appropriate for their clients, students, or patients. SpeechTherapyPD.com does not necessarily endorse, recommend, or favor the information shared, nor any of the claims, opinions, statements, offers, or services made by the presenter. Hello and welcome everyone. My name is Renee Garrett and I'm your SpeechTherapyPD.com podcast host for Brainstorms, Functional Neuro Rehab for SLPs. This is our second episode tonight and I'm super excited to welcome Amy LaRocca. But before we get started, we have a few items that we need to discuss. So just so you're aware, each episode is 60 minutes and will be offered for 0.1 ASHA CEUs. So we do have financial disclosures. So Amy receives a salary from Polaris Speech and Neurological Rehabilitation, who contracts with InMotion. Polaris Speech and Neurological Rehabilitation's Loud Crowd is partially supported through grants from the Parkinson Voice Project. There are no other financial disclosures from Amy. I do work for a large health system in the Commonwealth of Virginia and receive a paid salary there. And I do receive reimbursement for speech from speechtherapypd.com for this podcast. For the non-financial disclosures, Amy is on the board of the Ohio Parkinson's Foundation Northeast Region. She is also the chair of the planning committee for the Parkinson Foundation Cleveland Moving Day. I am a former president for the Speech Language Hearing Association of Virginia, and I am currently the secretary of the Communication Disorders Foundation of Virginia. Any questions that you have tonight can be written in the chat box or in the Q&A box of the Zoom chat. Questions will be answered at the end of the presentation. And now, without further ado, we welcome Amy LaRocca, M-A-C-C-C, S-L-P. Amy is the owner and lead speech language pathologist at Polaris Speech and Neurological Rehabilitation, a hybrid private practice in Northeast Ohio. Amy brings 17 years of clinical and teaching experience to her patients and specializes in evaluating and treating patients with Parkinson's and other neurological diseases. She's trained in Speak Out, Lee Silverman Voice Therapy, McNeil Dysphagia Therapy Program, Orofacial Myofunctional Therapy, and Manual Therapy for the SLP. And the fact that I got all that out without messing it up is a miracle. She holds a Parkinson Foundation Team Training Certification. Amy is also on the board of the Ohio Parkinson's Foundation Northeast Region, contracts to provide classes at InMotion, and is also the chair of the planning committee for the Parkinson Foundation Cleveland Moving Day. All right, so... That was a mouthful. Good stuff, right? 
so thank you so much, Amy, for being here. And as a just a little side note, Amy was my CF supervisor. <laughs> We've <laughs> so known each other for a little bit. <laughs> yeah. So this is not coercion to have her on the podcast tonight. It was actually a very humbling experience for me to reach out, ask, and for her to say, absolutely. I was like, of course. Yay. I didn't screw oh, it up when I was a, a new fresh baby. <laughs> Yes, yes. No, I am very excited and have been cheering you along your entire career. So I am very happy to be here. Well, I think I appreciate that. And so just again, a little bit of a background. Amy and I worked in inpatient rehabilitation together. And so that is a very intense environment, but also a very rewarding environment. And we have the added bonus of covering both outpatient when needed, and then also the LTAC that we had, so the long-term acute care floor that was housed in the same building. And so it was a very great learning experience and just a, a really good way to kind of, for me as a new grad, to wet my feet and and learn a lot of really cool things and have a team that I worked with with a lot of great mentorship and and some maybe not so great mentorship, which is also always a a learning experience because you learn that if you want to be a mentor, what to do and what not to do. And there's some pluses to that. So thank you, Amy, for being here tonight. So uh, let's just dive right in because I think when we think about Parkinson's, you know, there's a lot of public figures in the media from Michael J. Fox to Muhammad Ali. And so one of the questions that I wanted to ask you was, do you think those are good representations? What that looks like in the general population, because I know for my Parkinson's patients, we really see such a variety of what the disorder looks like and maybe the severity and and that variability of what that looks like. So, you know, what do you, what do you think about that? Yeah. So I think it's interesting because we have to keep in mind that Parkinson's and Parkinsonianisms have common characteristics, but every person, you know, classic saying is if you've met one person with Parkinson's, you've met one person with Parkinson's because they all vary so very much. So yeah, I mean, there are classic symptoms that we see, some of those cardinal four symptoms of Parkinson's we definitely see in both of those examples. And Neil Diamond just recently has been more public about it, um, about having Parkinson's. And we see those characteristics, but it's so, it's hard to generalize because it can look very different in different people. The main four characteristics are, you know, bradykinesia, the slow movement, the resting, the classic resting tremor that you think of when you think about Parkinson's. Um, But there's postural instability and balance issues. And then you also have that rigidity tightness. And so they have to have some of those cardinal symptoms. But beyond that, there's 40 total possible symptoms of Parkinson's in any combination of those 40 symptoms. So everyone's going to look a little bit different. And so that's why I feel like it's so very important to understand kind of how Parkinson's is different than treating other neurological conditions and even other neurodegenerative diseases. Mm -hmm. It can look very, very different. Yeah, I agree. I know I've had just in the last, because I morphed into outpatient a year ago, a year, 13 months ago. And so the people that I've had with Parkinson's are definitely 
running the gamut of active tremors, wheelchair bound, to walking around. And if you didn't tell anyone, no one would know other than maybe they have a little bit of dysarthria that really seems more like a voice disorder, not so much a a true dysarthria, but we know from dealing with Parkinson's that it, it is the hypokinetic dysarthria causes some some issues with the voice. And so sometimes the patients will get even misdiagnosed with just a voice disorder and not have that hypokinetic dysarthria mm-hmm. that we associate with Parkinson's. And then also ha- I had someone today who came in that I'm pretty sure has a form of Parkinsonianism that is maybe not a typical form because her only real symptom is, for lack of a better term, slurred speech. But she was 25, 30% intelligible on a passage reading to me as an unfamiliar communication partner. But in daily life, she's not getting this. She's getting feedback from her family and her friends that, I couldn't understand you, but they're familiar with her. So they're not seeing what I saw today, listening to her in the waiting room and listening to her read this passage. So it it is just so widely variant. And I think that's just such a great point and a great um, speaking point. Yeah. And I think it's important to, for us to realize as speech therapists that we sometimes are the first ones. I built a good relationship with one of the ENTs in the area, and I've been getting a lot of referrals from him lately, two of them. One, I talked to her on the phone, and I had some suspicions because it was some dysarthria, and she's biting her tongue, and some, you know, some different things. And by the time she came to me three weeks later for the eval, she's had a diagnosis of Parkinson's. She's very, very early in it. And so it, it's interesting because I'm not quite sure if that's really the the right thing too. But that's the other piece with yeah. Parkinson's is that there's not a definitive test. The Michael, I, that being said, Michael J. Fox Foundation did just come out with a discovery of there is a diagnostic test, but it's not readily available. It's only available in research currently. And so until that is widely available, there's not a definitive test. Most of our patients are going through two to three years is the typical length that it takes from first communicating their symptoms to their doctor to a definitive diagnosis, two to three years. And so if there's any swallowing speech any of those, we may be getting them in that time and they may not have that diagnosis yet. And so that's when we need to really communicate in, you know, the way that we tend to do as speech therapists, where we are being very clear in our report to the neurologist of all of these symptoms, which are part mm-hmm. of the major symptoms of Parkinson's because we're not going to diagnose it, but we can lay it out of these. We're seeing hypokinetic dysarthria. Um, We're seeing the galloping rate of speech. We're, you know, all of the different characteristics, um, decreased intensity of speech, um, faster rate, swallowing that's fine when they're really thinking about it, but their swallowing goes south when they are have distractions going on. Mm-hmm. So those are the types of things we want to look out for. And we've got to 
take out, I always say we're, we don't practice through a little telescope in our silo. Then we see how did they walk into the room? Mm-hmm. How, you know, how, when they got up out of their chair, did they get up and start walking right away? Or did, did they get up and kind of freeze for a little bit? And then mm-hmm. do the little shuffle before they got to the big. So we need to open our eyes to looking at the whole person to be able to put all that information together and communicate that clearly to the docs. Because a lot of times we may be seeing them as one of the first, you know, first people to be able to catch and communicate that information. Yeah. And it's funny because I uh, actually enlisted the chiropractor that works in the office space adjacent to me in our OT gym. And I said, Hey, did you see this lady walk in? What did you think? And she was like, yeah, she was really slow. But then she sort of had this gate that was just kind of, she said off. She didn't really identify it as one thing or another, but she said her balance looked questionable. And I said, okay, good. Cause I noticed that too. And so that's one of the things that I'll ask about too, is you know, falls. And even though we're not PTs, but it does speak to a pattern are you falling a lot? When you fall, are you falling forward? Are you falling backward? Do you notice a pattern? This particular patient today said, I don't notice a pattern, but she had fallen and actually hit her head. Like she has a, she had a gash about a four inch gash that required stitches the last big fall that she had. So she didn't really fall forward or backward, she sort of fell over. So that was interesting to me because it was in the middle of the night. She was going to the bathroom. She didn't turn the lights on. And so her workaround is to turn her flashlight on her phone on, but she's also over 80. So that's a little concerning for a lot of reasons. Yeah. It's like, which came first, the chicken or the egg. And so putting those different pieces together, I think is, like you said, really important when dealing with the neurologist and the other team members that meet um, maybe stakeholders, because this particular patient hasn't seen a neurologist at all, despite a recommendation from her physical therapy daughter and her PCP a couple of years ago. So, I mean, that brings up the whole conversation of meeting the patient where they are rather mm-hmm. than pushing the patient to where you are and, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Shared decision-making. Yeah. Providing. Exactly. It's that, you know, what does the patient want to discuss? What are they, you know, what information are they seeking and making sure that we're not pushing an agenda onto them? They've got to be ready for it. And it's, you know, a lot of times in those cases, I'll get a phone call then from the PT daughter, that you have to check medical POA, but then you can have, you know, answer her questions, which tend to be a lot more direct than sometimes the patients are ready for. That was the thing, though, is making sure those appropriate referrals get in place. And again, asking permission from the patient to say, hey, you know, this is what my professional mind says, but I need to know what your mindset is and what you're willing to do. Yes. And so I think that speaks to the next question about, you know, what makes working with people with Parkinson's different from those other neurological etiologies like stroke, like Huntington's, like MSA and, and PSP, because it does vary. Again, those shared goals and that um, shared decision making really plays a huge role in what we do next. Absolutely. And I think it's important to realize kind of because we have Parkinson's 
disease and we have Parkinsonianisms. And so they both share similar characteristics. You may see the same tremor and bradykinesia and similar symptoms outwardly, motor and non-motor symptoms. We can't forget that there are a ton of non-motor symptoms of anxiety and depression and cognitive changes and those types of things too. So Parkinsonianisms can look very similar to Parkinson's, but it's a different etiology. So Parkinson's is definitely from the decreased dopamine production in the substantia nigra. And Parkinsonianisms are typically from a different cause. So it could be caused from medications, something else. So you kind of knowing the difference because Parkinsonianisms are going to progress a little bit differently than Parkinsonian disease, people with Parkinson's. And so understanding both of those and some of the Parkinsonian isms, you know, multiple system atrophy, atrophy. So progressive supranuclear palsy. Yeah. 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 And so kind of thinking about what are we expecting? What's the, the prognosis? And a lot of times people will group Parkinson's in with ALS or some of the other neurodegeneratives that have a much quicker progression. Parkinson's, it varies so much. There are several different ways that they've subtype Parkinson's. And some of them, the most recent one that came out this year was looking at the cluster of symptoms and the progression. And they're thinking that that's going to help develop biomarkers and those kind of things a little bit more easily. And it can also help with that prognosis of the progression of the disease because it can be very different for people. I mean, I've had people who were diagnosed and in three years look very similar to somebody who's had it for 17 years. You know, it can look very different. So we have to keep in mind that we're there to support them where they are and whatever changes they they have. And the biggest thing to keep in mind is neurodegenerative and Parkinson's specifically. Park, people with Parkinson's don't just degenerate. They don't just get worse. You can improve speech. You can improve breath mm-hmm. support. You can improve swallowing. They improve. They get better. Our goal is to help support them in delaying their disease. There's right. a program with that name, but delaying the disease as much as possible. And there's tons of evidence and research about the importance of exercise and how the intensity, we, you know, we have kind of a prescription of recommendation from the APTA and the Parkinson's Foundation of how much exercise they should have. So then kind of going back to to what you were talking about with the collaboration, I feel like that's such an integral part of working with people with Parkinson's because in kind of going back to that, yeah, we're speech therapists, we have our scope of practice, but we also have the knowledge to be able to connect people with other professionals with in other scopes. So build that team. Find mm-hmm. your people in your area. That is always my biggest recommendations to clinicians is we need to partner together with OTs yeah. and PTs. If there's a a university that has a great program and you're, you know, you're able to collaborate with them, jump in, collaborate. We really all need to work together in the rehab realm and 
the uh, mental health realm, with neurologists, sleep specialists, ENTs. There's lots of different um, supports that patients might not even know is available. And so I feel like it's a large part of our responsibility to help provide that education. And again, you know, and it's allow them to let you know what they feel would be most supportive. Same thing with support groups. I mean, that's one of the, the biggest things that I always offer first is, you know, are you interested in a, in a support group and then seeing, you know, kind of what their parameters are with it? Yeah. I don't know. Even for me, our, one of our um, providers of PT program that's specifically for people with Parkinson's recently left our health system and went somewhere else. And uh, probably get in trouble if our health system do. I was saying this, but I referred them to her because she's the best. <laughs> and yeah. she's, she just is. It's just, she's so passionate. And we shared patients for a number of years when I would have someone in the hospital when I was still in acute care and I would refer them to outpatient with her and the outpatient SLP. And then she would refer to me as an outpatient SLP. And so I still will say, hey, you know, our clinic is not Sorry, it is what it is. They're ortho. They're, so that's <laughs> the thing is I feel like that does such a this is why we're in the profession we are, is to help support our patients as best as we can. And so if somebody else is a better fit, it's like it the same with us. I mean, if somebody came to me wanting professional voice singing speech therapy, I'm going to refer them out because that's not my cup of tea. You don't want me singing. So I feel like, I feel like that's the, you know, the best for the patients. But then if you're that, you know, if you're a speech therapist that doesn't have a ton of experience working with people with Parkinson's, but you know, there's a clinician in your competing health system, reach out to them. Yeah. Yeah, because we have to take us out as our our human and our our ego because it's not about that. And I think sometimes for younger, less seasoned clinicians, that is an issue because they feel like the pressure is there to do everything and be great at everything because of the way our, our profession is constructed. And really it's not because I've had a, a few patients that were referred to me that were classified as medically complex, but a lot of it was either a really complex, weird voice thing that I didn't know anything about or a TMJ compounded by a neck injury from a motor vehicle crash that was not a TBI necessarily, but it was more of a, like a holistic head Mm -hmm. bone structure-ish dental kind of thing. And I had to say, listen, I would love to help you, but I'm going to be honest and it's not my jam. I can help you find the person, but I am not going to continue to see you for something that I know that I'm not going to be effective at helping you with and making you feel any better. And I hope that you get that. And yeah, I think that's the same for any progressive neurological disease And I think, you know, a lot of our, again, our younger clinicians, our CFs are coming out of school and they're, I know for our clinic, the pediatric SLPs are very much pressured to do adult evaluations on things that they're not really equipped to do. And they wind up on my schedule and I'm like, no, what, why'd you, what? Mm -hmm. (laughs) So it, it is a challenge in our profession, but it also makes that piece of, making sure that your 
okay with making appropriate referrals, but then also being okay to say from an ethical standpoint that this is not something I'm well-versed in and I need to find you help, but I'm not your person. In the meantime, if, you know, for those that are kind of, even, even if you're not a newer overall clinician, if you're interested in a different specialization, you know, Mm -hmm. seek out that mentorship, seek out that, um, I actually just hired somebody on who reached out to me and said, Hey, I really love working with adults, but I really primarily, you know, I have some experience, but it's primarily peds. Can I come on and, and, you know, would you mind mentoring me? Because this is an area I'm really passionate about. Yeah. And other people 100%. have more experience, but man, do I want that person who's eager and wanting to learn. Right. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think just being able to find out um, where those resources are for things like people with Parkinson's and other, those other progressive neurological diseases, because they aren't you know, I, I feel a lot of people complain about not having access to journal articles. And I feel like for me, ASHA has a lot of free and accessible articles. There's definitely a lot with the Cochrane database that you can look up the meta-analysis and systematic reviews and things like that. So it's I think it's more about knowing where your resources lie versus saying you don't have access because there's a lot more access out there than people think. They do like a Google search and they see these two articles that are the most current, but they're in this journal that, you know, wants to charge them a hundred bucks. But again, if you work for a health system or a, a company, that's not your, your own private practice. A lot of those places have a person who will give you library access or obtain the journal article and email it to you. So you know, what are some resources and things like that, that, that are more like a free accessible assessment that I guess are more normed for this population of people with Parkinson's versus, you know, using our typical voice handicap index and Cape V and the Frenchie and all that kind of stuff. We're just kind of like, done this a thousand times and it's not really telling me what I need to know. Not that they're not good assessments. I'm not bashing an assessment, but specifically for people with Parkinson's. That's been the challenge. And honestly, it fluctuates, uh, you know, as research comes out. And that's where, I, I mean, I went into private practice because I wanted to be able to best serve this population and and some other neurological disorders as best as I possibly can, you know, in the way that I feel is going to be the most beneficial. But that took away my access to, I mean, I was teaching at a university, so I had access to everything at my fingertips, and then I didn't. So kind of before I move on to some assessments and things like that, as now that I don't have access to, and I'm not in a large health system anymore, um, your library, <laughs> like ASHA does have a ton. Always look at ASHA first. And then yeah. if they don't have access, if you see, if you have the citation, go to your public library. And if they don't have it, they will help you find a source for it. So my public library connected me with one of the other universities in the area who has a community reciprocal relationship with kind of private entities. And so now I have university access again, because I reached out, you know, that's it because I asked and, you know, they have a limited amount that they allow. So 
I don't think that not having access to research is ever a good excuse <laughs> because I, I don't either. Like you, can, you can find it. Yeah. Be creative. Think outside the box a little, even yeah. that's another one, a phone, a friend, like a phone, a friend, you know, ask someone else that maybe is in interested in the same things or in that same realm of maybe they are still in the university and maybe they can access that um, that material for you. If you're a member of a, um, a SIG, a special interest group in ASHA, you may have some access that maybe you're not aware of, but asking those questions because ultimately, again, it, it takes us out of the picture and it, it puts the focus forward on the patient. And that's really ultimately what it's about. Yeah, absolutely. So some of the kind of Again, the looking at not having to have these, you know, $500, $600 assessments, but you do want to have something that gives you that starting point, you know, something that allows you to measure progress and to be able to see the different areas. For cognition, I use the PDCRS, Parkinson's Disease Cognitive Rating Scales. It's free access online, and it looks at different categories of cognitive skills. The most frequent areas of cognition that may be impacted, not everybody's cognition is impacted with Parkinson's, but the areas that are most likely impacted if they are is attention, memory, speed of processing, executive function, and visual spatial skills. So the PDCRS does a really nice job of it has subtests so you can not just get a final number, but you can see what areas they had strengths in to be able to help use those strengths to support the areas that they were challenged in. So that's one I really like. A self-assessment for voice instead of the VHI. Mm -hmm. yes, yeah, voice handicap. Yeah. I, yeah, I use the general short form of the Communication Participation Item Bank, and that's also free access. It was published open access in a paper, but it's the same type of how do you feel, you know, mm -hmm. do you feel that your voice is challenging when you talk to um, familiar people, when you talk to people in the community, when you are having a long conversation with somebody about a book or a movie, you know, it gives specifics, but it doesn't talk about employment. So a lot of my people are retired. And so asking something about does it impact your employment or your financial gain or anything like that isn't always applicable. So this one is much more general in the community. And then as far as dysarthria and kind of a more quantitative I kind of have my my own motor speech evaluation that I that I utilize. I do measure peak flow for respiratory support and um, SZ ratio for vocal cord health screening. I'm trying to think of others. I use the for intelligibility. I use the 50 word intelligibility test to yeah. be able to give me a number to capture. Um, mm -hmm. But again. Oh, that's free access. So yeah. they, you, know, you don't need a ton of fancy things. You need a sound pressure level meter. Like get a good sound pressure level meter and think function. Where are they having difficulty? And see breakdown. It all comes down to the why. If any of my students are listening, like, it all comes down to the why. It's, you know, where are the challenges? How was your week? Why, you know, kind of what was going on with those challenges? 
Really looking at the environment for people with Parkinson's is important because attention has such a huge impact. Are you taking advantage of our new amazing feature? The certificate tracker. The free CE tracker allows you to keep track of all of your CEUs, whether they are earned with us at speechtherapypd.com or through another provider. Simply upload your certificate to your registered account and you're all set. So come join the fastest growing CE provider, speechtherapypd.com. I think for me, one of the things that I, I I do have a sound pressure level meter too, and I'll I'll note it just as a because again I get referrals too from the otolaryngologist, and so they like to see those measures, <laughs> and I'll put that in there because also when we do certain programs um, that we're trained to do, we do measure that as an acoustic measure for where those goals lie and, and where the patient is making gains towards. I find that the patients get excited about it too, because then they have a visual on the meter and they look at it and I'm like, where do you need to be? And they're like, well, I'm not there. And so it's helpful for that too, because it gets, again, gets them engaged, gets them to have some ownership and some buy-in to the programs that we are designing to help them. But someone had a question in the chat. Let me look real quick. Could you please repeat the name of that voice assessment? So the one that I named, it's a self-survey. So it's the general short form of the communication participation item bank. And I pulled it up so I could (laughs) say it and I can type it into the chat too. Yeah. And the other one is I use the voice handicap index a lot as just sort of a subset to it's, it's not necessarily, it's normed on voice patients. It's not normed on um, just specifically for patients with Parkinson's, but it does give you functional, physical, and emotional perceptions. It's it's not the same thing that Amy's talking about, but it's similar in that it discusses like your feelings about how you interact with uh, your community. Do you hold back or resist? Things like phone calls or social interactions or going out to dinner or being in a social situation that's outside of your home life. And it does include also home life. Like one of the questions is something along the lines of how do people hear you? Does your family hear you when you call them throughout the house or or something along those lines? And so the questions sort of overlap in that regard that they give you some scenarios that are relevant to function in daily life, which I think just having worked with Amy before, we both have always been huge proponents of what the function looks like. I think so, but we didn't purchase it as a clinic and it's on my... Yeah, you can Google VHI. VHI, yeah, Voice Handicap Index. And again, I use that sometimes just because our otolaryngologists that refer to me like it. Yeah, I think it's important, especially, I mean, for most populations anyway, for all populations, but for people with Parkinson's, because they're active in the community, like, you know, this isn't, they're usually still at work or volunteering or highly Mm -hmm. involved in what they're doing throughout their day. So keeping it in the kind of using those prompts, using those patient reported outcome measures are so very important. I use that as my data for, you know, a lot of times because I 
really despise standardized testing because it's not functional. I really want to know yeah. how they do when we're out in the community. Yeah. And it's biased. There's a lot of bias in it. Yes. Yes. Standardized testing. I agree. And I have some pretty functional 80 plusers, 80 plus year old patients oh, with yeah. Parkinson's who are still, like you said, volunteering, active in the community, walking the dog, oh, yeah. driving the golf cart. Going to the wine shop. We have a really lovely wine shop up the street. And there's a couple of people that I've had as patients who frequent there. And the wine shop owner will say, hey, this guy lives in my community. And pretty sure he's been your patient. I'm like, well, I don't know. I can't say anything. I yes. <laughs> can't tell you the things. But okay. they, I had the report last week of he's driving the golf cart. We do a, a social interaction at night when he's driving the golf cart. And so I just wanted to know if he's okay to drive. And I'm like, well, I'm not an OT, so I don't know. But his communication's better. <laughs> so. But that's the, so that's the challenge though, right? Like yeah. that's perception in the community. It's like, if I see their hands shaking, they shouldn't be able to do anything. When right. That, reality. In Motion is a nonprofit organization in our area that provides free classes. I think they have like 25 classes a week of oh, all so sorts cool. of exercise, boxing, a shoot, what's pickleball. Mm-hmm. They, I mean, it's, it's spinning. I mean, I would say a third of the people there would out exercise me in a heartbeat. I mean, now it's not saying much, but even three years ago when I was running regularly, it absolutely it's a different perception of people mm-hmm. with Parkinson's when you walk into a place when you're seeing people in the community right. and you would never know. I mean, there's a lot of people you would never know. So, it, you know, just because you see the classic tremor or you see that diagnosis, you can't assume anything at Yeah, all. because how many patients do you have that don't have a tremor? I'd, I've had a few who have... And again, or eight seventy, late seventies, early eighties have had a diagnosis for maybe ten-ish years, and they don't have a tremor. Their speech well, is more impaired. Their gait is more impaired, and maybe they're on you know medication already, so you wouldn't necessarily see the tremor when we get them an outpatient. It's so variant and so interesting. Yeah, what well, we do see. And that's the thing to keep in mind is that I mentioned the subtypes earlier, and there is, there's a motor dominant subtype and then a non-motor dominant subtype. And so it's kind of keeping that in mind of things to look for. I wanted, before we get too far off this topic, I forgot about my swallow, kind of the, the swallow prom that I usually use. And the one that is most appropriate, that's not the word I'm looking for, for people with Parkinson's is a swallow disturbance questionnaire. Okay. I actually just recently switched to that in the last year and a half, I think, because research came out that that was more accurate for people with Parkinson's. I was using a different one, but this one is the Swallow Disturbance Questionnaire is the one that I use frequently because it is much more reliable for people with, with Parkinson's. I see the question of, is there a motor yeah. evaluation that you like? <laughs> same, same. So the French A is so subjective. Yeah, I, very outdated. My same person can look at the same patient a half hour different and I might score. I think the French A is very subjective in the way that I look at it. Um, I agree. 
So that's why I use a combination of peak flow meter and then, like I said, SD ratio. I do sustained phonation, diadococinetics. Yep. I do endurance testing. So I have them speak for 90 seconds continuously to see if there's any difference from beginning to end. So I do some endurance testing. And then I also do, I use the Caterpillar passage for a standardized kind of way to be. Passage rating. Yeah. Passage rating, looking at rates and and all of that. So I'm sorry, Joni, I don't have a standardized motor speech evaluation that I have felt is consistently effective. Yeah, the same for me. And like today, one of the things I think that's really important anytime you're doing a motor speech evaluation is either putting up a barrier or not looking at the person when they're reading. Because most Mm -hmm. of us that have been in practice long enough, we know the ins and outs of the Caterpillar passage or any other, the grandfather thing, you know, we kind of know the targets. And if we're looking at the person, we pick up on their nonverbals, we anticipate what they're going to say. So you miss some of those acoustic characteristics and those Um, deficits, our brains will process because we know the passage. And so today what I did was I gave her the passage and then I just said, I'm not going to look at you. I'm not being disrespectful or rude. It's just, I need to hear you without looking at you. And I often will do that. And either, you know, back in the olden days, I put up like a piece of paper and then I felt like a jerk because I'm like, (laughs) but now I kind of just will say that. And then I'll look over here while they're sitting directly in front of me. So I'm not looking at them at all, but I hear the things. And so I can pick up on even things like, you know, some dialectal stuff. Like I have final consonant deletion because I'm from the South and that's just what it is. Do I try to, I don't, I'm, I'm terrible about it. When I first was a new clinician, yeah, I got in trouble in speech school because I had that and I tried to fix it. And, and now I sometimes can fix it. And then like this time of the day, it's like, (laughs) no, (laughs) nope. But I heard that today, but she also had some really interesting phonological substitutions. Like she had a W for a G, which I was like, wait, what? Yeah. So there's definitely some Things that you would pick up on that won't be an anticipatory sort of thing when you've heard this passage a thousand times, if you're not making that eye contact and picking up on those nonverbals. So that, again, it's a very, I don't want to say off brand. I don't know the right terminology for it. It's just something that you can comment on that may not necessarily be a full on standardized thing. But when it comes to something like the Caterpillar passage, we know that there's some basis mm-hmm. behind why we use that from speech sound um, and motor speech research. Yeah. So, um, you know, I think just, again, those go-to resources that we know are important for not only clinicians, but patients and families too, and how we can encourage our patients to live and thrive um, with this diagnosis, because again, it is so variable. Yeah. And the other thing, it's not even the diagnosis. Sometimes the treatments cause changes that weren't there just with a diagnosis. So Mm -hmm. deep brain stimulation is one of the um, 
interventions that are utilized, but it is literally drilling a hole and putting a wire with electrodes at the end to be able to stimulate the different areas of either globus pallidus or subthalamic nucleus, depending on where they feel is better to put it into. But it helps tremors and sometimes balance, depending on where they put it in, it does not help and sometimes is very detrimental to speech and swallowing and nasality. Mm -hmm. So that's education that I typically do and communication. That's the collaboration has to happen um, with the neurologist that they're seeing when they're considering a deep brain stimulation because you need to communicate. If their speech is severe already beforehand, you need to communicate that so that they can take that into consideration when they're deciding where to put it and when they're programming it afterwards. And even if it is highly impaired, it doesn't mean they shouldn't have it. It should just be one of the factors they consider. Sometimes, um, depending on the type of unit or brand of unit they have for their DBS, sometimes patients or the neurologists will program a seated program and an Mm -hmm. ambulatory program. So when they're seated, they're going to change the stimulation. The program B is for when they're eating and when they're sitting and talking but their tremors might be worse. Their balance is going to be worse, but they're sitting in a chair when they're, they have that. And then before they go to stand up, they switch to program A so that then their speech might not be as good, but their walking is safer. So keeping in mind that it's not even always the diagnosis or the original symptoms of Parkinson's itself, it's sometimes the treatments, medications. If they have a lot of dyskinesias, then... That may be caused by too much dopamine in their system, too much of that synthetic dopamine. So, and yeah, so, and there's also side effects that can happen and um, to when they have, so Joni said, this is so sad, but one of, um, somebody had had a deep brain stimulation done on their wife and they had a stroke with it. So I have a, I have somebody in my support group who was in the hospital for three weeks because he got an infection afterwards. So any type of treatment, there's going to be some risks to it. Um, And that's why I think that education is so important. Education with the patients of your, you know, kind of our scope of practice with it. And then that communication with the neurologist so that they can make, they make the ultimate decision about DBS and and what placement and all of that. Um, But I've, I've, it's it's our job to be able to communicate all the information that you have so that they can make the best decision. Yeah, I had someone over the summer who had has had a oh he's had a diagnosis for oh gosh almost thirty years and his DBS he kept saying I'm, I'm maxed out I'm maxed out and I'm like what do you mean you're maxed out but it, it was more that they needed to change. Uh, he said uh, the way he described it was very different from the neurologist note. And so they were planning to utilize a different power source. And so he's scheduled for surgery to readjust his DBS in, I think it's late December, mid December, something It's a long, like right around the holiday. And so he's sort of like, it's been a rough road because he gets depressed. Like you mentioned earlier, he's, he's very depressed right now because he's had a bunch of falls 
and he is wheelchair bound for community outings. He does walk with like a quad cane in the house, but it's not, it's not the safest, but he's at a point where he's not really receptive for therapy right now. And so we've kind of put a pause on him pending the surgery because of the depression and because of his um, lack of participating in the home exercise program. And so that sometimes is a barrier, but also, again, it's one of those things where we have to be mindful as clinicians that, again, meeting them where they're at. We can't fix it for them. We can provide help and we can provide resources. But ultimately, if they're at a point where it's not beneficial at this time or it's more of like a detriment and he's already really struggling with his mental health um, then we sort of have to, again, provide that education and then back off and let them make that decision of what they do next with their family and with their caregiver support. So I think that's a great point to circle back to that you made earlier. Yeah. And I agree a thousand percent. I really think it's important for us to understand that our role, especially with this population, isn't always to be their one-on-one therapist forever. Our role, I really think, should start from the time of diagnosis with a consult and taking baseline parameters Mm -hmm. and then providing the education that they are voicing that they're ready for at that time without overwhelming, but then being that person they can contact with questions throughout their journey. This is a very long marathon for them. And if anybody has done marathon training, that that marathon (laughs) training doesn't always go as planned. And so our role and responsibility is not just the one-on-one therapy, but it's to build that, to provide support to them. And in doing that, building a network with other professionals to be able to have those resources that you can direct them to and to provide for them. So then, you know, once they start to notice some of those things that you might have talked about in your education, they can give you a call and you can do some sessions to help with that. The other piece that I didn't mention earlier is that prevention. And so this is kind of something that I feel like is a role that we need to be taking as speech therapists more in this realm is developing programs that help to maintain and strengthen what they have now before they notice any challenges. The program I was talking about before, I teach four classes a week. One is brain builders. So it's all I kind of teach about each of those areas of cognition that may be impacted. We talk, it's a kind of a roundtable discussion of what strategies do we use for that? I explain what it is, what strategies do we use? We apply it to some sort of functional task, and then we talk about how you can use it within that next week. So a lot of those people, if I did assessments on them, they would test perfectly fine. No cognitive at all. They're strengthening what they already have And so Mm -hmm. they already have those supports if they do notice challenges. I do the same thing with a speech, say it like you mean it class. And then I have a loud crowd for maintenance after therapy. After one-on-one is done, then we do a group class once a week to maintain everything. So really that preventative, that maintenance, helping to strengthen what they have before they notice any changes is where we really need to be with this population. And I feel like that's an, an area that, is not as robust as I would love for it to be. And working together to be able to 
to create those programs, partnering with senior centers, partnering with the community center, partnering, you know, with universities or the health systems to develop those types of classes in mm-hmm. education is really, really important and very, very needed. Yeah, I always call it, like you said, the maintenance. And then I'll say, oh, you know, in three months, you might want to come back for your tune-up. Yes. Oh, yeah. That's what I call it, too. It's your tune-up. Most, most of the time, um, again, you know, a lot of our patients have such a great sense of humor. And they're like, yeah, um, because we do do the cognitive piece. And it's uh, one of my patients I've had twice now, he'll say, uh, you know, my wife can't hear me very well. And so I'm in the back of the closet in the main bedroom and, and she's in the kitchen and she's like, what'd you say? And he's like, she can't hear worth a crap anyway. And so we're kind of laughing because his breast support for his voice is projection and everything is not great, but he'll say, you know, really her, her whole thing is also BS. Is what he always <laughs> says. Like, so I said, well, you know, how do you mitigate that? And he says, well, I'd go to the room where she's at. And then all of a sudden, wow, she can hear me. And so <laughs> I think sense of humor too, is that goes across the board for me with all of my patients is their sense of humor and my sense of humor sometimes um, mesh in, in like weird ways. And, but it, it's such a good way to, keep and maintain that rapport. And I always say that we have this whole intimacy with our patients because we are one-on-one a lot of the times, or we're leading a group of patients with the same diagnosis and they do feel free to share sort of these more uh, personal encounters and personal stories that they may not share with other providers. And we get a lot from that. It gives us a lot of information on not only how we can help, but what we can communicate for referrals and other sources I had someone today, and it's not a Parkinson's patient, but a, a patient that had a a stroke, but she's having some pretty significant issues with writing. And it wasn't language-based. It was fine motor. And I'm like, you need to go see OT. Mm-hmm. I don't think you need me because you're doing great. And so, again, just knowing what that looks like so that we can engage those, those other multidisciplinary folks that may be able to provide a level of support that um, the patient really needs, but may not be kind of where we need to go. So is instrumentation expensive to measure peak flow and sound pressure levels? So I'm, I really want to measure MEEP, maximum expiratory pressure. That's what I really want to measure. Mm-hmm. I don't have the means right now to be able to do it as a private practice. If you're in a large hospital system, please, please advocate to be able to get it. If you can, it's um, a capital budget item. It takes 400 years to get. I know it. Oh, I've been I there. have a sound pressure level meter. They got me off of Amazon, but it works. Okay. No, no, no. But that's exactly. So sound pressure level meters are 40 to 50 bucks. Maybe the other thing is in the meantime, there's a free app on your there phone. Uh, yeah. The N-I-O-S-H app yep. is the most reliable of the sound pressure level meter apps. So N-I-O-S-H it is only available on Apple, on Android. There are some free apps. They're not as reliable, though. They're not as consistent with a sound pressure level meter. Um, the But the peak flow meters are, I think, f- like 15 to 25, depending on what you get. And it is a single use per person. But I, I use it on eval and I keep it. I have a drawer that has everybody's labeled and secured and all of that. And then I use it for reassessment. And, you know. So it's it's reasonable to do peak flow 
map and I just I yeah I wish that was more financially available but it's it's harder to be able to get um yeah, what is your opinion on oh go ahead yeah so I for like for me I don't want to endorse or discount any one particular program just because that's not um, sort of the intent of what we're doing. And then also I know what I'm trained in and what I would uh, say I had preferential, but again, I'm not financially reimbursed. So there's a tricky line that we sort of have to like skirt and not cross on that one. Um, I think there's benefits to both Lee Silverman voice treatment and speak out, but I, I don't feel like it would be appropriate for us to, endorse one or the other without being like a paid yeah. spokesperson. Cause it just sort of, it, it, it skirts a line that I don't feel like we can really ethically cross if that's. Yeah. So it doesn't answer your question, but it's appropriate. But let me, let's talk about treatment in general though. So everybody's going to respond to different cues. There's a research study and I'm horrible about quoting them, but there's a research study that took a look at the cues of speaking loud, speaking clear mm -hmm. and exaggerating what you're saying. I think it's the third one. It was loud and clear. And then I think the third was exaggerating. So it it's not backed by any of the brand name protocols. And it was really enlightening because it really was, everybody responds to a different cue. Um, I would recommend if you're interested in any of the programs, kind of look at it. What's the theory yeah. behind it? There's enough resources out there that you can kind of see what the theory behind it is based off of. And you may, one may resonate, resonate more with you than another. Um, but in all honesty, it, I'm certified in both in it really just depends on what the patient responds better to. Um, yeah, and there is definitely research backing um, those programs. And it's worth, again, having um, done your own research to see what you think is a better fit for your practice and maybe for the scope of patients that you've seen, you know, over a couple of years or whatever before. Because I, I know before I went to outpatient, I didn't have, I was in acute care. They didn't certify me for you just need to eval and get them out. Yeah, I was I was brain injury certified and fees. And that was, yeah, it was like, do it, do it, do it. All the things and stuff. Good luck. Don't go go get you some water and hope that you pee at work. That's it. That was it for <laughs> acute care. So, so now um, outpatient has afforded me a little bit more freedom to, you know, get those things that I feel like are beneficial for the patients. And so, yeah, I think it's. Um, it's really helpful to do your research and see what you feel like would be a better fit for your practice and, and what your patient population needs. Cause I'm sure there's people in outpatient who never, um, or, you know, maybe don't feel like they should see a patient with Parkinson's or another progressive neurological disease. Cause that's just not their jam. They might be mom, you know, more, I always say when I um, do webinars and things, have I, I've treated swallowing my entire career just because of the nature of where I work. Can I do it? Yeah, I'm, I can do it. I'm good at it. I know that I keep up with the research, but I'm not going to pursue board certification. So I don't want to spend uh, a lot of time on solely doing um, dysphagia 
things can I do it in relation to these other neurological disorders that um been you know well versed at for a long time uh yeah <laughs> but is that the only thing I do no it's not and so I don't want to ever um portray myself in that way Catherine Miller it's in the chat box the N I O S H app yeah I put it in the chat box so you can see it you're welcome yeah and and I completely agree. I think we need to keep in mind that we need to be honest with ourselves when we are treating a certain population. Um, I have had patients come to me and say, I've had speech therapy before. It's not going to work. Mm-hmm. And we talk about what they did, and it wasn't based on things that are effective for people with Parkinson's. The one thing to keep in mind, if you remember one thing when you're actively treating people with Parkinson's dual tasking for them is so very challenging. Mm -hmm. Give them not that they can't process multiple things. It's nothing against their intelligence, but just the way that their brain works, they're going to be so much more successful. If you find, if you find that one or two cues that gets the voice you want or gets the swallow that's most effective. Find that, keep it simple because mm-hmm. their brain is working overtime. They have a hard time blocking out that selective attention is so very hard. So make sure that you're keeping in perspective, what are the external distractions that are happening? Keep, don't, throw 15 different cues at them and expect them to be able to do it. They're trying to focus on all 15 of them, give them one or two, and they're going to be so much more successful in whatever you're asking them to do. That's a great piece of advice. And I agree a hundred percent. And I feel like I I'm like you, I could keep talking about this for another hour just because it's such a, um, it's such a fun for me. It's such a fun population to work with. And again, so variant and it keeps me on my toes. And um, while it's not my primary, I do um, see quite a few folks um, at varying stages. And so um, I just, I'm so thankful that you came on tonight, Amy, to talk about this and um, not just on a personal level, because, you know, mm. <laughs> it's always fun to catch up. Yeah. You signed my paperwork and stuff way back then. <laughs> Once upon a time. No, I I love this. I love being able to talk about it. I'm happy, you know, to if anybody has questions and wants to reach out, I am I'm happy to to answer any questions. So I love to be able to support so that we can all collaborate together because I think that's the most effective thing to be able to support our people with Parkinson's and help them to be able to live and thrive with this disease. They can thrive and we are the ones that can help to build the resources, build the connections to help them do it. Well, thank you so much. Um, Definitely. I know I appreciate you being here tonight and um, on behalf of speechtherapypd.com too, we, we just appreciate you being here tonight. Um, So, you know, there's so many takeaways from this and uh, I think you summed it up so well that I don't even need to to sum it up because we did that. Amy, thank you so much for being here tonight and um, you're just a wealth of information. And so I'm, I'm grateful for that. And um, thank you so much. And hopefully we'll maybe have a part two. (laughs) Well, thank every, thank you everyone for joining us too. And I hope everyone has a good evening. 
If you have indicated that you are part of the ASHA registry and entered both your ASHA number and a complete address in your account profile prior to the course completion, we will submit earned CEUs to ASHA. Please allow one to two months from the completion date for your CEUs to be reflected on your ASHA transcript. Thank you for joining us at today's podcast. Remember to go to speechtherapypd.com to learn more about earning ASHA CEUs. We appreciate your positive reviews and support and would love for you to write a quick review and subscribe.